That's better. So, um, you know what? I, I, I love the courage the little ones show to get up in front of people. I, how many of you would be willing to stand in front of people with a microphone in your hand under any circumstances, right? Some of us will, and uh, some of us, including me, have to work up our nerve. So for them to stand in front of you, not only stand in front of you, but then to declare the word of God, what a great, great picture that is. So we love our kids, and we're glad that that's happening. Before we get to the proverb today, I want to ask a question. What decision do you repeat over and over and over again every day of your life? Think about that for a minute. It's part of the message. What decision do you repeat over and over again every day of your life? Proverbs today is the 22nd. I've chose verse 15. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Wow, it's the word of God. Okay. So last week we were in Chronicles Chapter 20, verse 20, and um, uh, the, the, the setting there was that King Jehoshaphat was at a place where he stood up in front of the entire nation, and he said to them, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, or believe his voice, and you will prosper. If you want to be established, believe God. If you want to prosper, believe in the voice of God. Um, so we spent our time last time talking about uh, King Ahab and uh, Jehoshaphat, watching them to decide what voice to listen to. You know, back, even back in the garden, uh, the decision, should we eat the fruit or not eat the fruit, was not the first decision that they made. There was a decision that came before that. Before they made that, they had to decide, what voice am I going to listen to? And that's the thing that you do every day. Day after day, time after time, all day long. Um, and, and, what, and, and what do we do when the voice that we're listening to kind of flips back and forth, flops, flips and flops? I mean, today, okay, today here's our text, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want to pray. Let's pray. God, um, as we now um, spend a few minutes examining the wor your, your word, the Bible, the scriptures, Lord, I pray that, um, that your spirit would do sifting work within our hearts, that God, the things that are said in the next few minutes in this room that, that, that you agree with, that are yours, then let us somehow be open to those things. But Lord, the things that are just chaff, let it blow away like so much wind. If you agree with that, say amen, right? Amen. <laughs> okay, that's my little disclaimer that if I say something that isn't God's word, you're just supposed to let it you know, slide off your back. It's, you know, some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just get on with it. Okay, so um, does it bother you that we always, now I'm old enough that always is a long enough time that I've seen this a lot. Does it bother you that we always seem to have doomsday prophets yeah. around? Yeah. Have you noticed that someone is constantly yelling that the sky is falling? It's pretty constant, and um, so far in my few decades, <laughs> the sky has not fallen. And um, although there are problems and things come up and we need to be prudent and we need to be loving good stewards of the earth as we, um, as we do what the Lord instructed us to do with the earth, there's always doomsday things being said to us. And, um, you know, I'm at the risk of bothering you, 
I'm going to share um, today, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, I don't want, this is not political, but I want to talk about some of the things that have been shared in the public, um, in public on some pretty controversial topics. And I'm not going to make comment upon them, I'm just going to repeat to you headlines, okay? So my request of you is this, buckle up your seatbelt, just hold on as we go on a roller coaster ride and we look at what kinds of things have hit the news and um, I will let them speak for themselves because I think by the time we get to the end of the list, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. By the time we get to the end of this list, you will see that we have been told both that is true and no, that is true. Nobody's surprised here yet, right? Okay, nobody's got a bag of tomatoes, right? So um, I'm just the messenger. And here's the thing. These newspaper clippings that I'm going to put up for you, for you to look at, these headlines, they're not obscure. These are major news sources, trusted news sources, and the people that are being quoted are leading scientists at different universities and governments around the world. Okay, so there's, there's, okay, so that's, this is not me somehow going and finding some little thing to make a point somewhere. I'm just going to show you some things, and I'm hoping you're going to see some patterns here. So keep your seatbelt on and your seat in the upright and locked position. And um, so these are just news clippings. Don't get mad at me, okay? So they build, but they build a path for where I want to go with the Word of God. Okay, so first one, first clipping, Salt Lake News Tribune from November of 19... Um, you can't read it, so I'm going to read some of it to you. Um, this is from 1969. Um, it says, dire famine forecast by 1975. It's already too late, okay? And so this is actually written, this is from the Los Angeles Times. They reprinted it. And the, the, uh, the writer says, it's already too late. He's interviewed um, um, a scientist from Stanford. He said, the population of the United States is already too big that birth control may have to be accomplished by making it involuntary and by getting sterilization agents in, into staple foods and drinking water and that the Roman Catholic Church should be pressured into giving um, routine measures of population. Okay, so basically we're being told famine is coming. This is, the, this is the Los Angeles Times. Famine is coming, and it's already too late. By 1975, people are going to be dying. There's not going to be enough food. Okay, so I didn't starve. <laughs> okay, okay, 1969, not too much longer. This is now the New York Times, and they're saying about population control, uh, the trouble with almost all environmental problems is that by the time we have enough evidence to convince people, you're already dead. Drastic action is needed to head off what he foresees as a catastrophic explosion fueled by runaway population growth, limited world supply, and contamination of the planet by man. We must realize that unless we are extremely lucky, everybody will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. Okay, you laugh because this is absurd. This man was given what is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Science in his category. He is presently one of the leading scientists at Stanford University. Okay, I'm going to keep going here. Boston Globe, 1970, a couple years later. Air pollution may... Um, scientists predict a new ice age by the 21st century. That's by now. Air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century. The demand for cooling water will boil dry the entire flow of rivers and streams in the continental United States. Boston Globe. This is uh, quoting a scientist from, I can't remember what university, uh, Boulder, uh, research at Boulder, Colorado. Okay, here's another one. Um, this is the Daily Redland Facts is the name of this newspaper. This is 1970. And he says, um, uh, okay, so basically he says, 
America is going to be subject to water rationing by 1974 and food rationing by 1980. We're running out of food and water. Next one, 1970. This is the Washington Post. U.S. scientist sees new ice age coming. This is a scientist from Columbia University. In the next 50 years, the fine dust man constantly puts in the atmosphere by fossil fuel burning could screen out so much sunlight that the average temperature could drop by 6 degrees if sustained. Um, such a temperature decrease could sufficient to trigger the next ice age. Ice age is coming. Next one, Brown University. This is a letter written by, um, by a scientist at Brown University. Um, I'll read it to you, the first couple of paragraphs. Aware of, aware, this is to the President of the United States, written to President Nixon at the time. 1972, December of 72. Aware of your deep concern with the future of the world, we feel obliged to inform you on the results of our scientific conference held here recently. Conference dealt with the past and future changes of climate and was attended by 42 top American and European investigators. We enclose a summary report. It's been in Science Journal, and it's going to be, he names these journals, it's going to be in here's what he says. The main conclusion of the meeting was that a global deterioration of climate by order of magnitude, larger than any hitherto experienced by civilized mankind, is the very real possibility and indeed may be due very soon. Next one, 1974. The Guardian, which is a major newspaper in London. I'm moving forward on these fairly quickly. I could show you a lot more, but this is what I came up with. Okay, space satellites show new ice age coming fast. For the sake of time, let's just keep going to the next one. Next one is Time Magazine, another ice age. Telltale signs are everywhere from the unexpected uh, persistence and thickness of pack ice of the waters around Iceland to the southern migration of warmth-loving creature like the armadillo. Okay, so it goes on. All right, next one. We're going to shift now from ice ages coming to ozone. Great peril to life. Gas pairs away Earth's ozone. Scientists told Congress Wednesday that, that the Earth appears to be on the verge of a period of great peril to life on this globe because of threats to the ozone layer forming uh, modern technology. Okay, next one. Um, New York Times best-selling book, The Cooling, talking about, this is 1976, Ice Age is Coming. I'm going to keep moving. Here's the next one. Um, this, is, this, is, this is two newspaper articles. The top one is 1980, Nashville Ledger, and it says, Acid Rain Kills Life in Lakes. The lower um, is an article 10 years later, Acid Rain, No Environmental Crisis Study Concludes. It's a problem, it's not a problem. Next one, here's another one, problem, not a problem. Uh, New York Times, January 1970, international team of specialists finds no end in sight to 30-year cooling trend in the Northern Hemisphere. This wasn't that long ago. We were being told ice ages were coming. Okay, so 1970, no end is coming, 30-year cooling trend. But then 10 years later, according to NASA, there's been a slight warming trend since then. Okay, next one. Miami News, 1988, more droughts likely, expert tell centers, so on their way to Congress and scientists are telling that. But you can see the bottom one is a graph, and it was put out, I don't know who put this, uh, upper Midwest region precip precipitation. It's actually been wetter than normal ever since the prediction was made. Next page, prepare for long, hot summers. If you like summer record temperatures, you're going to love the 1990s, says a, a, a NASA scientist. Washington, D.C., for instance, uh, could go from current 35 days a year of over 90 degrees to 83. The level of the ocean will rise anywhere from 1 to 6 feet. However, you can see the chart below. The number of hot days in the D.C. area since 1911 have been declining ever since. And the bottom right-hand corner is 2017. It's still cooling. 
Next one, The Guardian, um, 2004. I'm making my case here. You can see that we're being told things. Um, the Pentagon tells Bush that climate change will destroy us. Britain will be Siberian in less than 20 years. This is 2004, so we've got a few years left. Okay, I don't mean to be too cynical. But the bottom, look what this says at the bottom. This is a prediction in Guardian magazine. Or Guardian, Britain is plunged into, will be plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020. That's next year. Nuclear conflict, mega droughts, famine, and widespread rioting will erupt across the world. The sky is falling. Okay, I got a passion about this. Um, let's just skip the next one. I mean, I think I've made my point. We, we have people telling us over and over again, keep going, don't, don't leave them up. Um, <laughs> I mean, even last week, um, a member of the United States House of Representatives made this statement that Miami will be gone within five years. Did you hear it? I mean, listen, I'm trying not to get all caught up in the arguments about ice ages, global warming, climate change. I, I don't want to come across to you like, um, um, like someone who doesn't care about the earth because I do, and I think we need to be wise, and I think we need to be careful. And the word says we're to subdue it. and all, we need to, It just makes no sense to ruin the place we, we live. But neither do we worship the place that we live. And there is a place of balance, and there is a place of seeking after truth. The question that I want to ask is the same question that occurred all the way back at the beginning in the garden. What voice are you going to listen to? Because the voice of God speaks as well. And there is something there. So, I mean, I, mean, I look at all these things and I, I, these, all of these experts, so-called experts, they, they point us to one extreme, then they point us to the other extreme, and they've both got the equal amount of passion about what they're saying. Sometimes they just, they, it's the opposite position on the very same subject. And then we're supposed to embrace their viewpoint. And in fact, we're supposed to embrace it. And we're supposed to shape our culture, shape our laws, shape our future according to that viewpoint. And if we don't agree to do that, then we get labels and names and, uh, and so forth. And I mean, I... If you want to ask me my personal opinion about some of these things, you talk to me privately. This isn't the place for it, but the point I want to make is I've done research, I've done reading, I've talked to leading industry scientists on topics. I've formed an opinion not based on what the newspapers have told me. And I also have a theological viewpoint. And I, I, I ask myself the question over and over again, what voice am I going to listen to? What do I need to do to please Jesus? And I see all of these so-called facts that come up and the conclusions that are made. And I, I look at the conclusions and I think sometimes the conclusions are based upon personal bias and sometimes are based upon agenda. I get intellectual whiplash. And um, so I grow weary being told that I have faced both an ice age and global warming at the same time. And, um, you know, worldwide famine, water shortage, ice age, global warming, and they don't, then they don't happen. And I think, okay, <laughs> what voice have I been listening to? What's missing? What's irretrievably missing from this is all of these theories completely omit God. <laughs> they just omit God. And I'm not saying discard science. I'm not saying discount science. I love science. I'm a nerd. If you know me, that's absolutely true. I am a science nerd. And, uh, but my 
intellectual integrity forces me to conclude that somebody, somewhere, sometime has been wrong. So there really are only two worldviews. You either believe that everything that exists was a, somehow a big, giant, cosmic accident, or you believe that everything that exists was the result of an intentional choice made by a creator. Those are really the only two options. Where you can go and the iterations you can take off of those two, you can do that. But it's from our worldview that your life decisions and your values all come forth. They all come from your worldview. It springs from there. And we live today in a day where, um, you know, and for some of you, your entire lives, it's been a time of, of, of authority crisis. You can see an authority crisis. Parental authority. How much influence and authority, and, 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 and authority do others exert upon your children? I've told the story before. Um, Lisa and I took our firstborn son, Ben, to college to deliver him and drop him off at the University of Washington. Good school. Recommended. Um, <laughs> not making a comment about cougars or huskies. I'm not going there. I'm just saying we were taking him to school. And um, so they had this, this parents orientation deal and there was this big auditorium and was full of parents that were kind of like us, a little bit scared. I suppose the parents that were glad get out of my house weren't there. I don't know. I don't know. They just, but anyway, so there was hundreds of parents there and a parade of different leaders came up to tell us what to expect about our kids uh, while our kids are away at college. And the... Um, the director of the Department of English at the UW got his turn. He got up there, and I don't remember anything anybody said except this one guy. And he said this. He said, you people have had 18 years to press your conservative ideals into your children. We're going to fix that in the next four years. <laughs> I thought, I don't know if I'm conservative or not. I mean, actually, I do know if I am or not. But he doesn't know if I am or not. But he knows for sure he's less conservative than all these parents. It was an interesting comment. And I started thinking, wow, look at the influence that he believes, and maybe correctly, that he has over young people coming up. We're, we've been in a, in a time of authority crisis in our country for a very long time. Marital authority in courts and elsewhere, uh, political authority, academic, ecclesiastical. And, and all of these challenges to authority rise from our basic world view. Um, U.S. Senator Hiram Johnson in 1917 made the statement, the first casualty when war comes is truth. And um, we're in a cultural war. And um, the, the point here is that every cultural war, truth is the first casualty. You know, I'm, I'm going to run through just a few social indicators with you. And um, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but here's just a few, a few facts. And I'm going to mostly look at before and after 1963, and I'll tell you why 1963 in a minute. Um, social indicators. So divorce rates, um, um, of 14% of people in the 40s, 14% of the people eventually divorced. They got married. 14% of people got married, 14% were divorced. By a generation later, by the late 60s, early 70s, that rose to 50%, and it's been holding steady ever since. Um, the breakup of the family unit. Babies born outside of marriage, 1970, is 11%. Today, it's 40%. Number of babies born outside of a, of a marriage. Um, the, the rate of marriage, how many couples 
decide to get married has dropped that had dropped uh, by 30% since 1970 and um, um, the divorce rate has increased by 40%. US United States legal abortions in the 37 years before 1963 total in those 37 years 9426. In the 37 years after 1963 these are the legal ones. 34,367 388,000. Now, since 1999, the number of abortions in the United States has been steadily declining at a very slow change rate, but it is declining. Um, it's still hundreds of thousands a year um, in, in our country. And in Washington state in 2015, um, 16, a little over 16% of every pregnancy ended in an abortion. That's, to, that's the most current figures, 2015. As of 2017, there are 51 facilities in the state of Washington that provide abortion services. And, you know, I, I think things have dramatically changed since 1963 in our culture. Now, I read through those numbers, and um, in, a, um, in a moment like this, it's a, there's statistics being presented. But when they land in a seat, they're very, very personal. Those are coarse truths about America. And, and, and I want to just pause because if, um, you know, I didn't talk to you about violent crime rates even that have over doubled um, murder, forcible rape, uh, burglary, aggravated assault, those kinds of things. Those, I mean, if, if, if one of these topics that I've talked to you about has somehow touched your life, I want to just take a minute and do two things. First off, my intent is never, ever, ever, ever to bring condemnation into this room. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation. And so if something that I mentioned in those last few minutes has touched your life, and when I touched it, it was a nerve and it hurt, please forgive me, that was not my intention. Um, but I, and I'd like to pray. Just take a minute and just pray through that. Would you just agree with me? Lord, we look at these, and they're more than statistics. They're, they're tragedies that happen, and they are tragedies that kind of tear into lives and into joy and into hope. God, I pray that not a single person in this room would sense any condemnation from heaven because that's something that you never do with your kids. So um, we, we choose the voice that we would listen to at this moment Lord, is the voice of the retriever, the voice of, 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 of the one who sees in us our worth, the one who loves us, who paid an impossible price because of the value you place in us. Love your name, God. And uh, would you just let your love rest upon us right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Anyway, amen. So we look at these statistics, and um, I intentionally chose 1963 as the point. Why 1963? Well, 1963, something very, very significant happened in our country, a landmark United States Supreme Court decision where they basically said, concluded that the Bible and prayer would no longer be allowed in the public school system in the United States. Now, maybe you have opinions about that. I've got opinions about it too. I just want to point out that that actually happened. Here were the comments in the public media of the day. Um, the Washington Star News, which back then was kind of the newspaper of record in, in Washington, D.C. I think it got a, it's not there anymore. They, they basically said, God and religion have all but been driven from the public schools. What remains? Will the baccalaureate service and Christmas carols be the next to go? Don't bet against it. 
you know, we don't have Christmas carols in school anymore. We have winter festivals or something. Okay, I get it. Billy Graham, um, June 18th, 1963, he said in uh, this comment in the New York Times, in my opinion, the Supreme Court is wrong. 80% of the American people want Bible reading and prayer in the schools. Why should a majority be so severely penalized? Justice Potter Stewart, who was, okay, it was, uh, the vote was eight in favor, one against. He was the lone dissenting voice on the Supreme Court. He said this, implausible, given the long history of government religious practice in the United States, including the fact that the Supreme Court opens its own sessions with the declaration, God save this honorable court. (laughs) And that Congress opens its sessions with prayers, among many other examples. Okay, so there was obviously feelings, and it's it's the law of the land. it's, It's easy to see significant change has happened in our country And I believe personally that that significant change hinged on a spiritual decision made by the leaders of our land. In 1963, the Bible became a casualty of of war, a casualty of our cultural war. And the original intent of the enemy of our souls has always been to question and reject authority. Happened in the garden. You know, he says, did God really say don't eat that fruit? It was a challenging of authority. It was challenging the word of God, words of God right at the very beginning. So I want to take a few minutes now and look at the word of God, what we call the Bible, and give you a few facts. So I want to just make a case now for the Bible. Um, it's the first book that's ever been printed. It's the best seller of all time. Um, in early America, when um, schools had uh, primers, um, it was, there were, typically were excerpts from the Bible in the primer where, where kids would learn to read. So they were not only learning to read, but they were actually learning um, character value and, and the Word of God at the time. It's not actually one book. It's actually 66 books that are written by a whole bunch of different authors, about 40. Um, it's, you know, pretty, most, most, most Bible scholars believe that it's 40 because some of the, some of the books, the authorship is not literally obvious, it's inferred or studied out, so about, about 40 authors. And if you're a student um, um, of the Word of God, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you know, or if you're not, well, maybe you have some objections that, that this is actually the Word of God. You know, what, are the, what are the objections that people have about saying that's the Word of God? Because I want to start this whole, this whole segment, segment and say, th- tell you this, the Bible is the real inspired word of God. That's pretty clear, right? (laughs) I'm making it clear. Not because I say so. Not because somebody else says so. Not because somebody else that you really respect says so. Although people who should be respected should be respected, but whatever. But that's not the reason that we would agree that it's the word of God. And today I'm going to give you some really good reasons for you to see and conclude on your own that this is the Word of God. So I, I, I always think it's good to look at what are the objections, what do people say against it and when they try to tear it down. They say things like, um, these accounts aren't really historical, they're made up stories. Um, there are, they say things like, there was no writing back in Moses' day. They're saying that the scriptures were written centuries after events actually happened so that what looked to be like prophetic was actually a historical review, not prophetic. Um, um, and they say that the Bible is full of contradictions, and the problems with all of those, those accusations and claims is that they're all really, really general. When I get those kinds of objections from people, and occasionally I'll sit down with someone who doesn't agree it's the Word of God, and they'll have objections, and they'll say those things, I'll say, okay, generality, let's get really specific. Take me to the specifics. And um, the reason I do that is because most people can't do that. I think, I think that, 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 that there have been too many 
archaeological discoveries and uh, too much academic discoveries. And, and in fact, uh, all of those objections under competent examination will just dissolve. They just won't hold water. And I want this church to be grounded in the word. I want you and your faith to be grounded in the word of God. So where'd the Bible come from? One, the Bible was written by men, but was actually authored by God. 2 Timothy 3, we've read that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's, that, that word literally means God breathed. Inspiration really means breathe. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, obstruction, uh, instruction in righteousness. All of it. All the scriptures, all of this book is the word of God. Apart from, and apart from this, all of the books are not the word of God. They're not. We'll talk about that. Um, I'm going to read the same sentence again now and read it differently. The Bible was written by man, but authored by God. And that, that statement acknowledges the fact that in terms of style and in terms of form, the word of God is influenced by men. Um, the, the form was influenced, not the content. Okay? We, we, know, that here's, we know that's true, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, form changes over time. Language changes over time. Linguistic style, cultural examples would change. I mean, if I was to give you an example today, people, if I, if I talked about, you know, playing, uh, made an example today about playing with a Game Boy, that would have been irrelevant to someone 100 years ago. What's a Game Boy? So examples change, but the content. So theologically, from the standpoint of content, the human writers have contributed nothing. Nothing. Okay. Point number three, the Bible has integrity. It all hangs together. Our Bible is, is typically viewed by us as coming in two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the actual scriptures that the Hebrews used um, as their scriptures and the Jew, people of the Jewish faith today. And there are many times in the New Testament that, and, that, um, that people in the New Testament were quoting from the Old Testament. The New Testament is primarily a group of letters that were written by Christian leaders to different churches. Um, a few of the books in the New Testament are, are historical books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there are some, some historical books, and then, of course, the Revelation. There are other old books out there that um, some faiths do believe are Scripture, and those books are called the Apocrypha. And the most notable place that you would, incur, you would, you would, you would encounter um, the Apocrypha would be in the Roman Catholic Church. And um, there are some good reasons why the Protestant, uh, why the Reformation happened, where it broke away from um, the, the mainstream Catholic belief. And, and, and part of that is the disagreement over those particular books. I would just go and say that the early church, the very, very early church, the first few hundred years, did not consider the Apocrypha to be scripture. Um, okay, point number four. The Bible is a well-documented, verifiable history, including from secular sources. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's lots of examples. I'll give you a couple of prominent ones. The Dead Sea Scrolls you've probably heard of. I'm at Wadi Qumran. Somebody found a cave that was full of jars, and uh, in those jars they cracked them open. There was 600 scrolls that were in them. Um, we did, they didn't have books. A book is like this, where you have pages. A scroll is, of course, two reels and one long you picture it with me, right? Um, this is way more convenient because you can flip to a page, a scroll to get to that page. You got to go a long way and you know, and ho horse around with all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they found these scrolls, and uh, six hundred some scrolls, and about a third of those were Old Testament scripture. The other two thirds were all kinds of different things. I don't know what they were, you know. 
cookbooks or something, whatever it could have been. And probably because cookbooks is a big section in the bookstore, so it probably was a lot of cookbooks, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, I mean, um, you know, nachos is nachos. So, um, um, and these, these, these scrolls, here's the thing. They, they, have been, they were discovered in the last century, but they're dating back to about 2,000 years ago. They're 2,000 years old. And when you look at those scrolls and compare them to the source documents of our present day, the Old Testament that we use, of course, we use it, it's, it's English. Ours has been translated. It's almost identical. Those old sea scrolls uh, copies are almost identical to the same sources that we have now. So, so that, that, that historical... Um, and then there's another, another uh, secular source I will mention to you. I've mentioned him before. A guy's name was Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Jew. The name Flavius was an adopted name. He eventually became a Roman citizen, but, but in between all of that, he was this Jew, and he was um, uh, not a Christian. He's a controversial figure in, in, the Jewish, um, in Jewish culture even today because at the time, he was a, um, a Jewish governor over a region, which meant he commanded the armies there, and he actually commanded them in their resistance against Rome. But things didn't go so well in that resistance against Rome, and eventually he flopped sides, and hence the controversy in, um, in their culture, and eventually became a Roman citizen and picked up the name Flavius, which was he was in the house of Flavius. Anyway, um, Flavius Josephus is this... He, what he's known for is, is being this reliable, authentic, trustable historian. He wrote about what life was like in the day. And you can go to your local library today and read his writings. It's there. It's, it's in the local libraries, and you can get it online. His probably his most famous um, book is something called The Antiquities of the Jews. And I want to read to you an excerpt from that book. You can go to the library tomorrow and read this. It's uh, Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, section 3. Okay, so here it is. This is Josephus talking. There was about this time Jesus... A wise man, if it be lawful to claim him a man, for he was a doer of wonders, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. A teacher of such men as received the truth. A teacher of people who are willing to hear the truth is what that sentence just said. He would teach people the truth. I'm shocked by this. He drew many after him, both the Jews and the Gentiles. He was the Christ when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive after the third day. <laughs> He's writing this as historical fact. This is a secular guy writing this. Um, as he appeared to them alive after the third day, as the divine prophets have foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day, and we're still going strong. What a thing to read this non-Christian secular, look what he says. Believe it yourself. I mean, I don't understand why he didn't. So these Dead Sea Scrolls found in the 20th century, there were 11 caves, 600 manuscripts, about a third were um, biblical. And of those scriptures that they found, every single Old Testament book was represented, some samples. Not complete ones, but fragments, some complete, um, except the book of Esther. And, um, um, and there is a particularly well-preserved copy of Isaiah 54. Anyway, all of these scriptures, these scrolls, predate um, AD 70, which is an important date. They all agree with 
um, the verses of the scripture that we rely on today. Um, they're called the Septuagint and the Vorlaga. The Vorlaga is, I don't, okay, I'm not going there. So these remnants, I would if you let me. No, I'm just done. I mean, these remnants that were discovered in the 20th century, they match up word for word in most cases with today's Old Testament scripture. What we call our Old Testament has not been polluted even though it's a couple thousand years since Christ and most of them existed for hundreds of years before then. Unpolluted. So we agree that it's really a book and we agree that it's really old. What makes us say it's inspired? There we go. Why is it the Word of God? What makes it, what makes it the Word of God? By the way, you may occasionally hear the word canon be tossed out there. You'll hear somebody in this discussion t- using the word canon. They're not talking about a military thing that shoots projectiles. That it, the, our word canon in this context comes from the Greek word canon spelled with a K, which basically means a basic measurement. Okay, um, it's, it's, it's that which everything else needs to be measured against. It's called the canon. And this concept for whether or not something would be considered canon rested upon two, two measurements, two, two things that would be, uh, be considered. First off, it had to agree, if something to be considered New Testament was going to be considered the canon, it had to uh, agree with what God's word was in the Old Testament. Had to agree with that. And those that had written it had to be people who had somehow had a direct relationship. They walked with, they saw the miracles of Jesus. Those are the two requirements. Okay, so how, are, uh, how accurate are our translations that we have today? They had a very easy way of keeping, um, keeping track of that. The Hebrew language, um, the letters are also numbers. So they don't have separate numbers. So, it's letters. So, so when they would write their document, it didn't have spaces and punctuation. You actually had the equivalent of a spreadsheet. And so you'd write this document, other direction, left, right to left. Anyway, you'd write this document, and you'd have all these, and you could actually add up, up across the sides and add up and down, and you'd get these sums and add them up in the corner, and you'd have a sum for, if it was on a page, you'd have a sum for the page. Now, somebody writes and makes a copy, a handmade copy of that, add them up. If they're not exactly the same, there's an error, go back and find it. They had a very reliable system for how to, to keep it, and, um, so they were, and they were diligent about doing that. It's a pretty good system. How do we know that the Bible is truly the Word of God? Now the rubber's hitting the road. That's really the germane question. Well, how do you know, other than that it says it's, it is, how do you know? I mean, because a critical mind will say, I've got to have some sort of evidence here for this. It's uh, the, the, the living, breathing God penned it. When we look at the Word of God, the Old Testament uh, tells us this history of this nation and um, God's plan to save mankind is kind of an overview of what's going on there. It's in detail. A lot of the Old Testament is prophetic. A lot of it is, we'll talk about that more next week in in more detail. But there are, I think, uh, one person found 8,362 predictive verses. So over 8,000 times in the Old Testament, God speaks to somebody and says, hey, this is going to happen in the future and it gets written down in Scripture. That's 8,000 plus opportunities to be right or wrong, okay? And um, so um, 8,000. So the Bible, first off, demonstrates its supernatural origins and authenticity with verified predictions about the future. They come true. And I'm going to give you some examples. Um, here's, uh, here, there, there are a lot of predictions about Jesus, about the Messiah coming over 300 and um, here are a handful of very famous ones that have been looked at before eight. 
eight prophecies of Jesus out of over 300. Okay, Micah 5, verse 2, basically says that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah 9, 9 says that the king will enter the city on a donkey. Um, chapter 11, 12 says he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Um, chapter, or verse 13, he says basically the money is going to go to the potter's field. Um, there's this whole thing, story about the, temper, uh, the temple and um, the blood money and, couldn't, and it gets tossed. Okay, there's a whole story there. Um, uh, Zechariah 13, 6 talks about the wounds in his hands. I, Isaiah 53, 7, he says he'll provide no defense at his trial even though he's innocent. Isaiah 53, 9 says, he would go to the grave, but he'd be buried with the rich at his death. And that's, of course, he went to the grave with a couple of thieves, and, but he was buried in the tomb of a rich man who had donated his, his place. And Psalm 22 um, says he'd be crucified. Those are only eight out of over 300. And there was a guy who calculated, what are the odds that any one person could meet just those eight? People who are good at math and can figure those kinds of things out can figure those kinds of things out. I'm not one. I don't do combinatorial uh, probabilities. Uh, some of you probably could do this, but you start that by saying, okay, he's from Bethlehem. It's real simple. How many people have ever lived on the earth and how many people were actually born in Bethlehem? It's a simple ratio, right? Okay, well, that gives you one out of X number of people um, could be born in Bethlehem. And then you multiply that times the number of people who would ride into the city on a donkey. There's a way to calculate that. And you go through all of this, and I, I don't know how you, you, you figure all this out, but you go through all that, and you come up with a number if you do it correctly. Here's the number that the scientists or the mathematicians would come up with. For one per the odds that one person could meet those eight, it's one chance out of one times 10 with the 28 zeros after it. Pretty unlikely that any person could do this. That's absurdly high, right? I mean, it's, it's just, and that's just for eight out of the 300. There are, and, you know, and, and here's the thing. Jesus met all 300. He met them all. I, you know, scientists, I don't know how come they conclude this, but they figure that if any odds are higher than one times 10 to the 50, that it's considered certain. One times 10 to the 28 isn't certain. Okay, whatever. But that was just for eight. But you add in all of the 300 and you go to a number way higher than one times 10. Mathematically, for one person to do this, that's proof of Jesus being who he is, who he said he was. Anyway, okay. So I, I want to just take an, a minute and read to you um, out of Psalm 22. I decided not to put this whole thing up. It would take us too long because we're nearing the end here. But I want you to hear what was written in the Psalms hundreds of years before Christ. My God, this starts with and ends with his first and last words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, it goes on. Um, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord God. Let him rescue him. The words of a centurion. Let him delight in him since he delights in him. Let, let God fix this whole thing. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are, like, are out of joint. My heart is like wax. This is a psalmist. How does he know this? 
It is melt my and my heart like wax is melted within me. He his strength is dr- my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. <laughs> You've answered me. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That he has done this. Psalm 22, written all that time before. How could the author of that psalm have had any idea to write those words if it wasn't put into him by the Holy Spirit? It it just couldn't have happened. Now, I've shown this a few times, and I've been here nine years, so if you've seen this before, it's not a big deal to you, but every time I look at this, it's a big deal to me. I want to talk about the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. There's a list of names from um, Adam to Noah, There's 10 generations, and it gives you their names and what they mean. You can read there and find out these names in this order and what they mean. Here we go. Adam means man. Seth means appointed, because Eve said, you know, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom came came killed. Enosh is the next. Um, Seth had a son named Enosh. His name, Enosh means mortal. Canaan or Kenan means sorrow. Um, he had a son named Mahalalel, which means the blessed God. The Hallels are sections of the Psalms. The Hallels mean praises. Uh, the next, uh, he had a son named Jared. That doesn't mean jewelry store. It means, <laughs> means um, shall come down. Name Jared means shall come, da- come down. Um, Jared, come down here. I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's going on. Uh, that's apparent. Sounds like, okay. Um, Enoch means commencement or, or, or it means teaching. The name Enoch means it. Methuselah is, comes from two, word, two root words. One is death, and the other root word means to bring. His death shall bring. Lamech means despairing, and Noah means to bring comfort or to bring relief. Okay, here's the thing. You take those 10 names and you string them into a single sentence. In the, United, in, 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 in the English language, we... We have articles, the and uh, right? Okay, so I'm going to stick a couple of those in so that the sentence, in, in the same order that they were born, with their literal meanings, creates a sentence. Um, and we get to sparkle on this one. Go ahead and put my sparkly slide up there. Okay. Okay, so I will read the sentence. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort. <laughs> I look at that every time I look at that and I think the miraculous story of the gospel and the love of God somehow stuck into the first 10 generational names. Wait a minute. The Bible's a a fairy tale. Are you telling me that rabbis who stand against Christ being the, the Messiah somehow came up with this plan that would force these first generations to name their children things that would paint the story of the gospel in their holy scripture? Or that this is random chance? (laughs) That takes too much faith. I don't have that much faith to believe that this is just random coincidence. It's just crazy. It's proof of tampering with the scripture. It's proof of engineering, right? It's proof that God painted things into his scripture that are not obvious but they're, they're 
obviously cool. That is so cool. I got a whole lot more, but I don't have time for it today. I'm going to move along. So scripture is full of examples. And, and, and Christ fulfill, fulfills the scriptures and the specifications for being the Messiah beyond any sort of competent dispute. He satisfies all of these prophecies about him. He's the Messiah. He's described in the Old Testament. He satisfies that beyond any real competent dispute. Then if he's truly God, if he truly is the Messiah, as he's proven, then he turns around and Jesus authenticates the scriptures. He says that the scriptures are holy. There's lots of places, and you can read in the New Testament. There's over 165 places in the New Testament. He directly quotes the Old Testament and says, yeah, that's the word of God. I think the primary one, though, that we should capture is, is Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. The law or the prophets is a label for the scriptures. They called the scripture the law and the prophets. The law was the first five books. The prophets was most that. And then there's poetry. Okay, so he's saying, I didn't come to get rid of the scriptures. I came to fulfill them. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. Jesus declares the scripture's divine integrity and its divine origin. Not only does the Bible demonstrate its authenticity, but somehow it stays relevant today. You know, today's, today's books have a shelf life. This is still going. I mean, when I say a shelf life, if you go to college, you go shell out your 350 bucks for your tuition textbook for that one class. You take the class again next year, that's no good anymore. It's obsolete. You've got to buy a new one. I mean, it, it doesn't have a shelf life. I, Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And this is all pretty compelling stuff, I think, that I'm sharing with you. You should be compelled. You should be, I, I think you should believe it. Okay. And, um, and, but I know people say, well, listen, if God would just show up, if he would just show up and stand on a mountaintop, and let his voice boom like thunder and say, it's me, I am God. You should follow me and you should straighten out and follow me. If he would just do that, I'd believe him. <laughs> He's not going to do that. He's already done it many times. He has shown himself that way. He's shown himself strong on mountaintops. He's shown himself strong on a cross. He's come as a pillar of smoke and is a pillar of fire. It's never enough. And the scripture even warns us that a wicked generation will seek after a sign. Prove yourself, God. That's why I think in part God says in Hebrews 6, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. It's, there's just something inside of all of us of self-will. I have this memory of when I was a four or five-year-old little boy. We're done. Why don't you come on up and get playing so that I'll get done here. Um, I have a memory of when I was four or five. <clears throat> my family weren't Christians. My mom's not here today. I would tell the story even if she was. I've told it once before. I think she was here. But when you're a little kid, you pick things up. And um, I'm trying to decide whether to give you the filtered version or the raw version. Do you want filtered or raw? Okay. So I picked up something somewhere. You know how little kids will pick things up and they'll say things that embarrass people, their parents. And I don't know what came upon me, but I'm probably four and I'm in the living room and I looked at something and I just said, Jesus Christ, with that kind of tone, right? 
you asked me for the raw version. And my parents said, whoa, 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 into your room. We don't talk like that around here. I don't know where you get in there. Being the just as strong-willed four-year-old as I am at 64-year-olds, um, I went into my room, closed my door, went into my closet, closed that door, and started yelling, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. It's cute, isn't it? I wasn't calling out for him. I was exercising my stubborn will. Don't you tell me what to do. You can send me to, you can send me to my room, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I have to confess to you, I haven't changed all that much. <laughs> A little bit. I mean, that old memory, for some reason, it just sticks with me. The Lord won't let me forget that <laughs> for my own good. And it's this defiance that we have. There's just something in that little boy that does not want to give up control. Something I don't want to yield. Lord bless that little one. <laughs> Somebody in there is just going, yeah, okay. And the word of God that we're talking about here is just like manna. Remember the story about the students, or the, the, the children of Israel, and they're wandering in the desert. They wandered a long time because of their stubborn wills. Years. But the rules about the manna were this. It would fall every day, except one. And you had to go out and gather it yourself. You couldn't gather it for anybody else. They couldn't gather it for you. On one day a week, you could gather enough for yourself for two days. But those were the rules. You tried to break the rules, the manna would be rotten. And you'd go hungry or sick. And I stand up to hear to you in front of you regularly, and we look at the Word of God, and, we, and, and I explain it to you. And I'll keep doing that. It's what I'm supposed to do, and it's good. But there comes a point when... Every will has to bend to the will of God and you have to gather your own manna. You gather your own bread and you have to, every single person needs to come to a point where they say, I will take the responsibility to gather my own bread. And when you do that, I promise you, when you are told truths by the world, you will have in your soul the word of God to help you to discern and to know what's true. What are the best measurements? It's not your feelings. It's not your stories of other people. It's not your experiences. It's, none of those are an adequate standard for measuring. You know, um, sniffing every fragrance that comes along is not good for you. It isn't. I go with Lisa to the little towns and we go into these oh cute stores. You know what an oh cute store is? You step in the front door and you hear this oh cute, oh cute, oh cute. It's coming from different places. All oh cute stores have candles burning. I have learned it's not good to smell a burning candle. They'll burn you. And in every single one of us, there is still, at some level, a living, breathing, willful little boy or little girl that doesn't want to give up control. My favorite verse is, my, that probably is my favorite verse, Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is 
and believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to, we've just tossed out so many just plain facts today. I pray.